When someone tells you a story, usually they'll start out by giving you a setting. For example, when I was a kid visiting my granddad's farm. The other day I was standing in line at Kroger, or from the movie American Pie, this one time at band camp. John, the gospel writer, places our imaginations as well. After being in Jerusalem, Jesus has crossed over. He goes over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. John expands the picture by telling us that a large crowd kept following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus, in his first escape of today's passage, goes up a mountain and sits down there with his disciples. So far, the crowd is not with him. It's just Jesus and his disciples on a mountain. Now, you can consider some of the other events that have taken place on a mountain. There's Mount Sinai, where we got the Ten Commandments, there, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. I guess that he gave them to us. And then there's, there's the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus and the other three disciples gathered up there. The temple at Jerusalem was built on a mountain, so we're already, we already know, if we know this, the past history, we know that Jesus and his disciples are on a holy place. Mountains are holy places. But there's one more statement that John makes that gives us the setting and the context for what's about to happen. Verse 4 in this passage, John 6, says, Now the Passover, the, festal, the festival of the Jews, was near. Now, if you're just reading through that passage and you're, you're kind of wondering what's going on, it doesn't seem to make much sense. It's like, well, why does, does John tell us this? But he uses that to set the context for us, to say, well, think back for yourselves. The first Passover was, who, who was helping out with the first Passover? Moses? The story is the the escape of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God has sent Moses to the people to bring them out of Egypt. And they're told to not not wait for their bread to rise. And so they have unleavened, unraised bread. And so when the Jews celebrate Passover every year, they always do it with unleavened bread. But it's... It's a recognition of what was happening back in these ancient days of Egypt. They were celebrating the Passover. They were celebrating the fact that that God led God's people out of slavery and to a place of freedom. So consider God's provision for the people of Israel, even as we consider the provision that God is making for these people who come to Jesus. Jesus looks up. And he sees a large crowd coming toward him, and he playfully says to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? Now, there's 12 disciples, right? Where are we to buy bread? Like 12, 13 people would have enough money for 5,000? He says this to test Philip, John says, for Jesus Jesus himself knows what he's going to do. And I expect Jesus himself knows that Philip is not expecting a miracle. Now, certainly Philip had seen his share of healings, but this was 
a huge crowd of people, 5,000 people, and he can't help his realistic response. Philip says, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little, a taste. Philip is thinking realistically, and his brother Andrew does the same. He says to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? What are five loaves and two fish among such a large crowd? What is Calvary Baptist Church among so many neighborhood needs? Within a mile of our building or less, we have slumlords, we have prostitutes, we have neglected and abused children, we have drug addicts, we have homeless people, we have hungry people, we have people who are seeking a Savior and they don't know where to find him. What are 150 followers of Jesus among so many needs? If we force the issue realistically, we come down on the side of uselessness and decide it's not worth staying here. Realistically, what are we among so many people? What are we among so many needs? But Jesus forces us to look beyond realism to faith. He challenges us to look not for the limits, but for the possibilities. John's gospel is shouting to us that when we invest what we have, whatever we have, that Jesus will multiply our gifts and meet more needs than we could comprehend. A cartoon pictured a teacher to colleagues in the school's teacher lounge. The teacher says, it worked. I told them that the multiplication table was none of their business and they learned it in a week. (laughs) And so I would say that in a way, the multiplication table is none of our business. It's Jesus' business. We have only to trust and to act and to watch our Lord at work. But that's not all. Jesus provides the bread of life to the crowd gathered before him. And because of what they experienced, John's gospel tells us that when they were satisfied, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the fragments left, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. And one commentator, I thought, I liked the way he or she said that Jesus reminds us that what seems like it's leftovers is still important enough to be mentioned. A lot of us sometimes may feel like leftovers, like the best meal is behind us, or like maybe nobody cares about us anymore. Jesus disagrees. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they began to say, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the Messiah for whom we've been waiting. And when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So remember that statement about the Passover? We might imagine again the Hebrew slaves leaving Egypt. 
the Egyptians chased them at least until they came to the Red Sea, and there their quest ended, as in Miriam's hymn from way back then, the horse and rider were thrown into the sea. The people with Jesus are chasing him and wanting to make him king by force. And perhaps some of us struggle with wanting to be king or queen or president or leader, the one with the control, the one with the queen's treasury, the one who is worshipped and adored. At Lee Chapel in Lexington, when you walk in, your eyes are drawn to the white marble statue of the recumbent Lee in the alcove beyond the altar. Knowing whom we worship in churches, a boy asked, Is that Jesus? His grandmother replied, No, that's Robert E. Lee. His response, They worship Robert E. Lee here? It's a valid question to consider whom do we worship? Whom do we worship at Calvary? Ministers and staff, lay leaders, church ancestors, the choir? The temptation is there to worship humans and force them into a divine capacity, but the reminder is here to worship only God. So Juan and I were talking recently about um, applause during worship and, and the temptation for us for, or, or for the choir or for him or whoever gets clapped for is to think, well, that's for us. They're clapping for me because I did such a wonderful thing. But who are we clapping for? Ideally, we're clapping for God, right? And so is that, is that the proper way to show our appreciation? We, we show appreciation in various ways. Maybe it is. Maybe that's the thing for us. Maybe it's verbal. Maybe it's um, just a, a silent prayer of thanksgiving. Maybe it's a comment to the choir members following worship. Whom do we worship? But I think, too, it's a temptation to, um, you know, if we do worship people, if we find that they are taking the place of God in our eyes, then we want to let those people do the heavy lifting they, to do the work for us. But our reminder here is to do our part but to leave the heavy lifting to God. There's a seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, it, it has been, if it's not still, the largest seminary in the world. But in 1930, around the depre- time of the Depression, things were much different. They had had to cut faculty salaries by 10%. Music teachers were given no salary. Instead, they were asked to charge students for their music lessons as compensation. And eventually, no salaries could be, paid and could be paid, and faculty members accepted donations of food from local Texas churches. Well, that was around May. In September of 1930, the seminary's president, Dr. Scarborough, brought the following emotional report to the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. Brethren, we are through at Southwestern. For two years, we haven't paid faculty salaries. We have nothing with which to meet expenses. Our percentage of the allocation will not see us through another year. Here is my resignation, and I turn over to you the seminary property. 
You'll have to sell it to pay our debts, and Southwestern will go out of existence. And in case you're unfamiliar, the Southern Baptist Convention accepts money into what's called the cooperative program, and then it's distributed among their seminaries and other organizations. Well, there was a few minutes of stunned silence at this meeting in September of 1930, until the president of Southern Seminary, which is in Louisville, Kentucky, the oldest Southern Baptist seminary, said, I may lose my job for what I'm about to say. Southern Seminary has some income from endowments on which we can live. I move that Southern Seminary's apportionment be cut and the difference given to Southwestern. And so through that unselfish cooperation, through that godly provision of sharing, a financial disaster was converted into a mighty force for dispensing the gospel throughout the world. Now God created Jesus to be not an earthly leader who is easily corrupted by selfish power. But God created Jesus to be one who would eschew such temptations and withdraw again to a mountain by himself so that he can keep his heart and his mind centered on God. Now, I can't help but wonder, was Jesus tempted at all when they wanted to force him to be king? Did he have any kind of temptation to say, oh, that might be kind of fun? Oh, think of the power. Think of... Think of how many people I could convert. Think of how many people I could tell about God and God the, the ways that I believe about God. But yet, he withdrew to a mountain by himself to pray. This hits home when we set our minds to searching for what we force out of Jesus. If they were trying to force him to become king, is that something that we would force him to do if we encountered Jesus? Crown him with many crowns, we sing. Also the dentist's hymn, I've heard. Would we force him to be our friend? What a friend we have in Jesus. Would we force him to be our Lord? Christ the Lord is risen today. Would we force him to be our foundation? The church's one foundation. Also the contractor's hymn. Would we force him to be steadfast and unchanging, rock of ages cleft for me? Also the geologist's hymn. Jesus can be all of these, but my concern is when I force Jesus to be just one of these or only a few, then I am blinded to what else Jesus is. I am blinded to the miracles that take place all around us. A young boy asked his mother if she would bake a loaf of bread for him to share with his friends. And when it was ready, he couldn't wait to take it outside and show it to his buddies. So out he ran with a big smile on his face. And a bit later, the mother looked out the window and saw her son standing with a catcher's mitt in his hand behind home plate, her flattened loaf of homemade bread. So my concern is that I take the bread of life and I make a toy out of it. I make home plate out of it. I, I walk on it or I run across it. Respectless and realistic. I don't want to be blinded to miracles that take place around us. How about you? 
So what will we do with the bread of life? What will we do? If you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent a night with a mosquito. That's an African proverb. But think about, you know, as people were trying to force the issue with Jesus and force him to be king, what does it take for us to force an issue? It takes sacrifice. We may sacrifice some of our understandings about Jesus, our ideals about Jesus, or our ideals about ourselves or other people. But the sacrifice, whatever it may be, is going to be worth it to offer to others the transforming and filling bread of life. What are we among so many needs? We are a force, my friends. Think about Moses. With God's provision, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we continue to recognize the Passover that proves God's provision. God has an ability to transform, to transform. And with God, we are a force for transformation. We have experienced the bread of life, have we not, in some miraculous way? And now Jesus has given it to us to share. Let's pray. Holy One, we have been filled by you. Give us courage and strength to share your gifts. Amen.